This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show, how to have strong willpower. That is our, our pleasure centre, where we just want it and we want it now. With leadership expert, Bros Taylor. When you are in the pub and somebody's already bought you that drink and you've already told yourself you're not going to drink during the week and before you know it, your hand is around the drink, it's on its way to your mouth. <laughs> Pause. It's not the failure that counts, it's the bouncing back after the failure. And I think it would be impossible to go through life risking stuff and not risk failure. Hello, welcome to this week's City AM Unregulated podcast. We're joined by leadership expert Roz Taylor, who has drawn on her 30 years of experience and numerous interviews with FTSE CEOs. And today we're going to ask, in true Wizard of Oz style... How to improve our willpower. Do you think if I went with you, this wizard would give me some brains? You're out to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Is willpower actually measurable? Because we measured mine and my number is 59. <laughs> what does that mean? That sounds like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> that the meaning of life is 42. <laughs> Do you know, I can't remember. I'd have to look. It's 59 out of 100. That's not bad, yeah. I wouldn't have thought. But what if I was lying to myself? Well, then that would be foolish, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, I could imagine you might want to lie to me. Were there any particular areas that you came up as scoring lower? Uh, putting things off, I think, was right. a particular weakness. Right. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So the kind of do-it-now approach works, for, yeah. or would work for you if well, you could find a way of doing that. So I'm very much, my mum brought me up to get horrible stuff out of the way before I do nice stuff. But it does sometimes feel like I'm only doing horrible stuff because that just keeps coming. <laughs> well, you can maybe do a horrible stuff sandwich. So you could do then a bit of nice stuff, then the horrible stuff, and then reward yourself with more nice stuff. How about that to be yeah. going on with? Yeah. Well, I did say at the beginning of this that this might be like a therapy session for me. <laughs> yes. um, so, so let's launch into the kind of the theory of willpower. What, okay. Tell me what willpower means to you and to your readers. It's a kind of cluster of things. It is about resisting temptation. So it's about stopping stuff, but also about starting stuff. So in terms of the stopping stuff, it is resisting temptation, putting off kind of instant gratification for long-term goals. But it's also about starting stuff. So it is about drawing out some goals, writing them down, keeping to them, uh, being persistent, persevering in the face of adversity all of that good stuff and it's been consistent as well and it's working hard and sticking with things so that that's the the doing stuff but then there's the kind of stopping stuff but I think you need to replace stuff to stop stuff does that make sense yeah so if habits. you it, yes it's, it's getting into really good habits and I do spend a lot of time in the book because as a psychologist I'm really into establishing good habits and how you go about doing that so even though you want to stop stuff it's always good to replace it with something so these two things are really linked it's kind of like when smoke could say they need something to do with their hands. Yes, yes, twiddle with something, yeah. absolutely. So one section that I, I thought was really interesting was you talk about what goes on in the brain yes. when you're using willpower. Can you enlighten us a bit? Well, it really is all... I was thinking about that as I was walking here. It's really all down to that in a way. And it's understanding that, I think, that really helps. We've got this glorious kind of rational brain, which really abides in our frontal lobes. And the prefrontal cortex, which is in front of that, that really is 
the lovely, rational, cool response to things that we want to stop doing and start doing. The kind of pleasure principle lower brain, which is in the ventral striatum, you don't have to remember any of that. Good words but the lower here. the lower brain in the limbic system, that is our our pleasure center where we just want it and we want it now and we want to do it. And we don't want to wait for these lovely long-term goals or these bigger things that we want to achieve. So it's a constant fight between these two parts of the brain. And if we kind of understand that, then we can understand well what helps the this this lovely frontal cortex to work and what happens that we can kind of stop the the pleasure principle lower brain and if we can get that into place then hey ho we're we're kind of off and running so you know to to give our listeners an idea of the sort of thing that you're talking about give us some tips what are your kind of your three big tips to keeping an eye and will right 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 um first one i would think was the pause and plan that when you are in the pub and somebody has already bought you that drink and you've already told yourself you're not going to drink during the week and you have written that down somewhere, that goal is on your fridge and before you know it, your hand is around the drink, it's on its way to your mouth. (sighs) Pause. Is this what I want to do? Could I pop it down on the counter? Could I engage in some chat? Could I just, you know, move around my friends? Could I offer that drink to some somebody else? Could I then get a sparkling water that looks a little bit like a drink in the wine glass? And could I do that? So it's pausing a little, but it's also, if you can, planning in advance and say, well, I'm going to sidestep that. I'm going up to the bar myself. And I will get something, a soft drink that looks like wine or beer, and I will drink that instead. So it's kind of like interrupting yourself. It's interrupting yourself. And when we do that, we're quite good at that. There was a lovely piece of evidence that came out just after I wrote the book, actually, that if you can distract yourself from any temptation at night for 10 minutes, 5 to 10 minutes, then we can actually go without. And I often do that. My kitchen is downstairs in my house. So if I can take myself up to the lounge and not take anything sweet with me, then I can't be bothered going back downstairs again. (laughs) And honestly, I forget. I'll look at television, I'll be reading a book, and before I know it, oh, time for bed, and I have not succumbed to that biscuit. So distraction works. Okay, like toddlers. My my yes. three-year-old godson is very similar to that. Well, do you know what? We really are still toddlers in our brains, sadly. <laughs> As we said in our previous podcast, I should say. <laughs> podcast number 52. So go on, that's, that's tip number one. Tip number two would be understand that if you do want to establish a good habit, and you talked about habits, the book is really a lot about habits, then it takes three weeks to change an old behaviour into a new one. And another nine, roughly, I mean, it can sometimes for little things be less than that, another nine to turn it into a habit. So if you want to run every day, for example, instead of lying in bed for an extra half hour, then it is good to get into the habit of just putting your kit beside the bed so you can just fall out, half asleep, put it on, out the door. Or get a friend to come and knock on your door just to remind you. And then that habit, do that for three weeks. And then you will be in the habit of really missing it if you don't do it. Okay, and tip number three. Tip number three is become an optimist. Now, that's not an easy thing to... (laughs) 
Yes, I know. You want to be kind of wizen cynics, really. <laughs> Here I am sitting with lovely young people. Uh, but you do. You want to be cynical. But I think you can still be, you can be a realistic optimist. I'm not a kind of happy, clappy optimist. You know, somebody's um, throwing you out your house, your cat's been run over by a bus, and your best friend is has stolen your your, per- your person, your significant other. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's stupid to say, well, actually, I'm fine. No, you're I'm not. You're really not. <laughs> you're not fine. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting we should all be smiley, smiley, happy people. Not at all. But I think we can be realistic optimists. We can say, well, today's not good. By this time next week, I might feel better. And the one after that, I might feel better. And I'll put things in place to make myself feel better. So it's realistic optimism. Because I think there's an inner dialogue that talks yourself into stuff or talks yourself talk yourself out of stuff. And if you can be in the former, then that helps. But so often we have an inner dialogue that's kind of perfectionist. I'm only as good as my last podcast. Or <laughs> I'm only as good as my next piece of writing. No, you're good. You don't have to be the world's best, but you can be good or okay, and that propels you forward. And if you can say, you know what, I was really good at that willpower challenge I did last year, so why wouldn't I be good again this year? You talk about this inner perfectionist, and I'm really interested in that because, you know, I think if there's one thing that I have in common with so many of my friends and so many other people, it's that when I try something, so, for example, running every day, as you said, one day I won't go for a run, and then I'll be like, well, it's over then, isn't it? you know, and then I'll just stop running. So how can you kind of convince yourself that you haven't completely failed? Well, you know, there's a piece of neuroscience around that too, wouldn't you believe? It's called an extinction burst. Part of the brain really quite liked you lying in bed. That's the the lovely pressure, pleasure principle limbic system. It liked you lying there. So in about two to three weeks, it's going to kind of fire up there and go, you know what, have a duvet time. Maybe not a duvet day, but a duvet hour. And we'll just get them back to where they were before. So the major thing is to say, that was just one day. I'm back on track tomorrow. It was a bit wet outside. I thought, mm, yeah, I can't be bothered, but I'm going to get up. The kit's at the end of the bed. My friend's going to phone because maybe the friend was away doing something. My friend will be knocking on the door. I'm back on track tomorrow. So it's being aware that your brain fires up trying to get you back into the old habits. And the major thing is to know that, not succumb, because it will take a bit longer if you have a week staying in your bed that extra time. It's that bit tougher to get back out the door. Just be aware it's an extinction burst. It's no biggie. I can get back on track tomorrow. And and tell me about the marshmallow test, because this is, I mean, this is quite a well-known test. It isn't is. It? But to me, you know, it suggests that actually our willpower is set. There's no way to change it. But you argue against that. I do argue against that. Uh, Marshmallows were presented to some children. And if the children resisted the marshmallow, they got two later on. So in other words, that is that whole uh, long-term gratification piece. And they've then followed these children up over a period of years and years. And they found that the resistors... Uh, were more successful in everything that they did. They were less likely to become criminals. They were less likely to become ill and in hospital. There was a whole load of stuff that was attached to having good willpower as a child. Now, 
that's lovely because, well, it's, it's interesting research. But if you intervene in that and help people realise that they can acquire willpower, that it's perfectly doable if you follow the rules of, of habit formation, then that would change and that they would be successful in everything they undertook as well. And, and of course, I think I talk in the book and it's um, it's been an interesting piece to follow up, which is the two ends of the spectrum abuse children, um, but they are so stressed that it just erodes their upper brain. The cortisol just washes the brain and they become at the level of, of animals where they react to stuff and everything is short term and everything is fe- a fear response. And so that erodes their willpower. But these children can be helped with willpower too. But at the other end of the spectrum, it's overindulged children as well. So if parents overindulge children, as they are doing more and more nowadays, because there's more money around, and children are just getting stuff because they exist rather than because they've they've worked hard for it, that erodes willpower too. And it means children don't stick at stuff. And when they grow into adults, they're not sticking at jobs either. Technology, I mean, is that destroying our willpower? I, I sit and at work I have three screens in front of me. And I've got Twitter on one screen. I've got analytics on another screen. I find it, you know, it is hard to concentrate. How can I stay focused? Well, if you want to focus, it's probably to take yourself away from your desk. If you (laughs) are wanting to write a piece of copy, for example, you may want to go somewhere with an iPad so you're not bombarded by stimuli so you can actually focus on something. But you've got to have the willpower to stand up and move away from... What is what does become an addiction in a kind of a way, because your all your eyes is is being cast to the latest thing that comes up, and because you're in the business you're in, then you're always interested in stuff. But if you need to focus, you need to stand up and walk away. I was actually asked to do a radio program, and this guy who was on it had created this um, device called a Pavlock, where you put it on your wrist and it gives you a shock. It gives you a shock if you go into an overdraft. Here you are standing in the queue and you go for your credit card and you get a shock uh, that tells you you've actually gone into overdraft as soon as the credit card goes through. And So this is Manish Sethi. It is. And he hired a girl to slap him in the face. He certainly did. Whenever he used Facebook. Whenever he used Facebook. Seems like it was, an extreme measure. It seems a very extreme measure. And so I think he thought, this is a little foolish. Um, why did I hire somebody when maybe I could find another way of doing it? As you would. A much cheaper way of doing it. So he got this little electric shock thing. So in other words, if you had been sitting at your desk a little too long, you would be shocked into standing up and going somewhere else to just use another piece of equipment uh, rather than your desk to write the, the piece of copy that you needed to do. I feel like my Fitbit needs to be redesigned. <laughs> yes, you could maybe do that to be a little a little shock for the, the overdraft of the overuse of, uh, of social media yeah. and devices. Yes. Hey, Emma Hazlitt with two T's here. I wanted to share with you how much both City AM and I love podcasts. And to do that, I'm going to tell you a story. I was listening to the podcast Lime Town a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard it, you should listen to it. It's very dark and frightening. And I was listening to it while driving down narrow country lanes. And let's just say there are some loud bangs in it. And we nearly ended up in a country hedge. So 
yeah, podcast behaviour. Love it, embrace it, tell your friends. It's not like Fight Club. Tell everyone about Podcast Club. It's super cool. Thanks. So you've got some great names in the book as well, and one of those is Judy Murray. Yes. Um, what, what did she have to say about her son's willpower? She was really in admiration for their willpower. I suspect she has that too, of course, um, because she does mention when her sons were younger, the willpower of just going out and the practice that they did. But they, they, I think Andy got particularly bored with just playing with his brother and his mother <laughs> and wanted to go elsewhere. But um, she does also, she did tell me the story of when he didn't win at the Olympics mm-hmm. and he just went into hibernation but then he couldn't because he then had to train for the at uh, the US Open so he had to practice again and she said the will part of getting yourself out to do that when you were just so depressed that just you hadn't won oh just want to wallow and I think he did I mean he just wallowed for a while and she's just in such admiration of him and and it is very difficult I mean he's now had another injury an elbow injury I think you know getting the willpower to get yourself back on track is just amazing but she put it down to and kind of linking back to those early years that they didn't have much money and that they had to work hard for every single piece of sponsorship they ever had to get. And she has too, uh, because she works in Scotland and Scotland just doesn't get the money. Mm-hmm. So she's been a great role model for them in that. But also their upbringing was not of plenty. And I think that has helped them with willpower. And you also spoke to Dame Stella Remington, who, of course, is the former MI5 director. She talks about confidence. Yes. What's, you know, what's that, the role of confidence in willpower? Well, it's, I think, confidence to know that you can get there in the end and that you have got a skill set that you've built up to do it. And if you don't, then you found a way to do that. So it's always that I've, I can find a way... And in her context, she was saying that she found herself kind of thrust into the limelight. I mean, she didn't ask for the job. She was kind of given it. And she was <laughs> always surprised. Quite a lot. I interviewed about 80 chief executives for another book. And I was amazed. They were from the FTSE 200. They had a kind of imposter syndrome. You know, that I'm really an imposter and I'll be found out that I can't do this job. <laughs> it's really quite funny when you think of that. You would imagine these people would be full of confidence. So our confidence is quite selective. Um, we're often confident in one area but not another. But I think it is the confidence that you will persevere, that you did something before that was tough. You manage that. You've got the inner dialogue that can say, well, if you manage that, you can manage this. And it's the confidence to move forward. Justine Roberts was another really interesting example, I thought. Um, she's the founder of Mumsnet, if you didn't know. Mm. And she talked about the, the delayed gratification of running your own business. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be able to associate with that. Oh, me too. You know, <laughs> I've been running my own business for more years than I care to mention. And she absolutely nailed it. It's not looking for the jam today, but looking for the jam tomorrow. It's looking forward to when you can have these goals and it it sustains you. It's having that vision to sustain you when times are tough. Because when you've got your own business, believe me, that you will always come to 
some dippy periods, put it that way. And it's having that confidence to know that you can get out of those and you've got the, the wherewithal to do that. And she had that in spades. Um, I wanted to talk about some public figures that aren't in your book, but that I, you know, I, I kind of wonder about their willpower. Um, so one of them is Charlie Sheen who obviously very publicly had a breakdown and has had a bad time. Now, he seemed to have problems in every single area of his life. Is Do you think that kind of started and then snowballed, started with one thing and then grew into all these other things? How how does that happen? Yes, I think sometimes when you're at a, uh, you become a star, not that I know how that feels, but, you know, starry one people. Day, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Um, starry people, they... They, they get a whole load of money and a whole load of attention and they sometimes just don't know what to do with it. It's like lottery winners. That's a very good example, actually, lottery mm. winners. And I'm sure Charlie maybe falls into that category. They get all of this money with kind of no preparation for it. I mean, they haven't had to work hard for it. It's just come to them. And the number of lottery winners that manage to get rid of that cash very quickly is unbelievable. Mm. So go back to them 10 years later and not a penny left. I mean, I'd actually like to be a test of that. I'd like to pilot that <laughs> whole thing. I'm volunteering because I think I do have the skills to use it correctly (laughs) and give it to lovely people as well as myself. But some people don't and they don't have the willpower given all of that cash swimming around to kind of control it and use it and use it wisely. And he has used it in many ways, I'm sure, with with ways we can't even imagine of unwisely. And, And that's a great shame because it's kind of ruined him and... And now he's really not a very well person. No, he's very ill. I know. Um, What a shame. Great guy too. So from Charlie Sheen to Donald Trump, I thought was another interesting example because on one hand, he doesn't drink at all. On the other hand, he kind of blurts stuff out on Twitter. What's his kind of willpower profile? Where would he be on the scale of 1 to 100? Well, interestingly, Ariana Huffington, that I do quote in the book, she has a view in this, which is he only sleeps three or four hours a night. And she thinks that acts as a disinhibitor that of your frontal lobes, where we know where the rational brain exists. And that's why she feels he blurts, which I think is interesting. But I do hmm. wonder how her, his mother dealt with him, because I think he's probably quite a pampered person. Yes. And that, you know, he apparently watches Fox News all day which is maybe not the best place to get your information, as we now know, and plays golf the rest of the time. And so we're not talking a lot of willpower to digest stuff, which is a bit scary given that that is a leader. And and finally, um, I wanted to do an entrepreneurial example. So Mark Zuckerberg, who's the Facebook founder, now he has these very strict New Year's resolutions every year. This year it's decidedly statesman-like decision to visit every state in the U.S. Do you, does this suggest he's he's one of the the optimists that you talk about? I don't know. I do know that he understands streamlining his life because I think I have put an example in the book that he just always wears kind of grey chinos and a, a grey a T-shirt um, because he just doesn't have to think about it in the morning, which is clever because it means, you know, you've got time for other, other stuff. But, you know, for us women, we, we often spend far too long wondering what we're going to wear in the morning. Um, and so, you know, that streamlines life. Is he one of the optimists? I, I think that's quite a 
pleasurable thing to visit old states. Was that why he was doing it? Because he felt he should? Or... I think he wanted to understand the world more. Ah, right. Okay, yeah. well, that's a lovely thing. And good for him. And why wouldn't you do that uh, when you've got all the time and the money in the world to visit every state? Does that make him one of life's optimists? I don't know. I didn't talk to him. I, I would have thought he's probably pretty optimistic, given what he's done with his life. And the way he's going with it, I can well imagine that. But you could easily go back to him and say, was he persistent? Did he visit every state? And what did he learn? I mean, when's the, when's the time in your own life that you've really had to use willpower? I remember, it was a few years ago now, and we were bought into by, I called them big men in suits, but, you know, guys from the city, uh, invested in our company. But I just felt they were not running the company to the values I held dear. And they were going to take a young psychologist. They were going to make her redundant. And I just hired her. And I found myself saying, don't take her, take me. And I had nowhere to go. I hadn't looked for another job in any kind of way. But I did phone a whole load of my friends who said, oh, I think you should leave. Only one said, I think you should stick with it. So I remember going away to the States. I was taking my mother to Disney. It was her birthday. I thought, you know, every... Every 80-year-old should know about Disney and the haunted house, where she screamed, I have to say. Anyway, when I, when I was away, it was everything I had to sort of focus on, not to just give in and go back and work. Because I had to really think, what do I hold dear? What should I be doing with my life? And I ended up going back and speaking to the person who took over the company. And I said, no, I'm definitely going to leave. I've got nothing to go to, but I am definitely going to stick to it. And I think that took every every ounce of willpower because it would have been so easy just to go back into uh, a lovely stipend that came in every month rather than doing my own thing. But I did do my own thing and gradually built it up. And actually they had incurred debts on our behalf as well on our credit cards and didn't tell us. And a colleague and I, we paid them off within the year. And I have to say, never look back. But that whole piece of not being beholden, of, of being subjugated and really, really wanting freedom was terribly important to me. But to hold on to that when really it would have been easy or not, that took a lot of willpower for me. Willpower and bravery. A little bit of bravery too, yes. <laughs> courage, a bit of courage, courage and willpower. Yeah, final question that I wanted to ask, and that is, sometimes, is it important to fail? Oh, gosh, yes. It's how we learn. It really is, and I think it is our ability to want to fail, or not want to fail, that's not, to cope with failure. You don't want to fail, but to <laughs> cope with failure, that it's, it's not the failure that counts, it's the bouncing back after the failure. And we learn so much from failure. We think, well, I'm not doing that again, or I'll do this instead, or oh, I should have seen the signs and next time I will. I mean, it is such good learning. And I think it would be impossible to go through life risking stuff and not risk failure. Absolutely. And on that note, Ross Taylor, thank you so much. With thanks to Roz Taylor and our podcast producer, Jamie Wareham, this has been City AM's Unregulated Podcast. Hang about for this week's Twitter conversation, but also, and I will take a deep breath here, subscribe in all the places. You know them, but we're on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Audioboom, 
or anywhere else with RSS. And remember, email advertising at audioboom.com. Our audience is millennial, ABC One, super engaged and super cool. Keep loving podcasts. Tweet me at Emma Hazlitt with two T's with an example of your iron will. See you next week. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.